Welcome to Airway Breathing Conversation, a podcast presented by the anesthesiology residents at the University of Saskatchewan, created to provide individuals of all levels of medical knowledge with anesthesiology-related healthcare information. This episode is part of our abridged Grand Round series, in which highly knowledgeable and sought-after guest speakers present on a multitude of fascinating topics relevant to anesthesia. Join us for a very special multidisciplinary Grand Rounds this week, where Drs. Dave Sauter, Jill Newstead-Angel, Devin Hudek, Jans Vandermeer, Henry B., Aaron Delorme, and Michael Pristajecki present on the perioperative management of diabetes from the perspective of multiple different medical specialties, including internal medicine, endocrinology, anesthesiology, and orthopedic surgery. Now, whether you are an anesthesiologist, resident, medical student, or member of the general public, come listen in as we demystify the incredible specialty that is anesthesiology one episode at a time. So we're just going to do our combined ortho anesthesia uh, GIM grand rounds, and we do have some guest presenters today. Um, we thought it would be really interesting to talk about diabetes from the pre-op to the post-op. There's been lots of discussion about A1Cs and PAC's role and how do we optimize patients. So I'm glad that we're all able to come. So I'm going to start out with a case. Um, and just before I start, we're going to acknowledge that we're on Treaty 6 territory and the homeland of the Métis. We pay our respects to the First Nations and Métis ancestors of this place and reaffirm our relationship with one another. And the objectives you've all seen on the email that was sent out. So we're going to start out with the case, Mr. M. He's a 72-year-old male that was seen in PAC for a preoperative assessment. Um, he had his, He's going to have an elective knee replacement. He's been on the list for two years, like everyone else has been on the list for a long time. So he's got a history of diabetes for the past 15 years, no known complications, also a history of hypertension. He's on metformin, one gram BID, glycoside 30 daily, perindopril 8 daily. He doesn't check his sugars because he's on oral medications. And why would he want to check? Because he feels great. His A1C was done a year ago. It was 7.2%. He has seen the nurse and he's waiting to see all the others. And so he wonders, why is he here at PAC? So Dr. Pristajaki. All right, thanks for the introduction. So what I'm gonna do is provide a high level overview of what we do in the pre-admission clinic and how that contributes to the perioperative optimization of diabetes. So we'll start by talking about the history and evidence for pre-admission clinics. That slide did not work, that's okay. So up until about the 90s, the majority of patients who went for non-cardiac surgery were admitted to hospital before their procedures to undergo preoperative evaluation. And it was realized that this was potentially not a good use of hospital beds. So for that reason, this group in Britain developed a pre-admission clinic with the goal of admitting people on the day of their procedures um, with the hope that that would reduce bed utilization. And what they found is that in this randomized control trial, utilization of inpatient beds went down by about 30%. And that was really the main impetus for creating pre-admission clinics. If you fast forward to the 90s, healthcare organizations became really interested in this idea of same-day admission. And you can see that from 1990 to the mid-90s, there was a dramatic increase in the proportion of patients who went ambulatory surgery or were admitted on the day of surgery. And over the same time period, 
the complexity of patients increased. So you can see that the proportion of patients who are ASA3 or higher increased over that time period. So what this group in Stanford did is they established a pre-admission clinic. The patients would come in one to two weeks before their procedure. They would be assessed by either a nurse practitioner if they were low complexity or by an anesthesiologist if they're high complexity. There was a standardized process for ordering investigations before their procedure. All of the investigations were reviewed before the end of the clinic. There was even an electronic patient health questionnaire that the patients completed at intake so that the clinicians working in clinic had the information they needed to formulate an assessment and implement an effective plan. And what they found is that after they implemented the pre-admission clinic, there was an 87% reduction in safety and cancellations, as well as a 59% reduction in the cost of preoperative testing. So that's really the main reason why these clinics were established. In Canada, we did the same thing too. So the administrators in Canada had the same interest in using fewer inpatient beds for surgery. And this group in uh, Toronto, at Toronto Western, found that pre-admission clinic and same-day admission was associated with a low rate of same-day cancellation. So what are the goals of a pre-admission clinic? Well, first and foremost, we're trying to improve the patient's care with the hope of reducing complications. Um, these clinics have been shown to improve patient satisfaction. Patients report feeling that they're less anxious about their procedures. They have a better understanding of what's going to happen. The clinics facilitate communication between anesthesiologists, other consultants, and the surgeons. And then I think the main reason why these things were established was to minimize operative delays and same-day cancellations. So what is our process here in Saskatoon? We followed the same trend that everyone else did, um, establishing pre-admission clinics. So the process starts with the nurse practitioner or the family physician referring the patient to a surgeon. The surgeon would then do their uh, consult. If they deem that the patient needs surgery, they send in a booking card to surgical scheduling, who will then book their surgery and pack visit on the same day. So the patient will receive a call from either the surgeon's office or surgical scheduling with the date of their PAC appointment and their, and their surgical procedure. Typically, those PAC appointments are booked one to two weeks before their procedure. The patient's then asked to go see their primary care provider to get a history and physical performed. And then they come to PAC. And in PAC, um, it's a team sport, multiple providers, the unit assistant is so crucial in terms of ensuring that the right requisitions are done, the place runs smoothly, the registered nurse will do an assessment, a med rec, and so forth. ECG is in there, phlebotomy is in there, the patient will be seen by anesthesia and or uh, GIM and physiotherapy is seeing them too. So it's a, it's a busy day for the patients, um, but they're seeing multiple providers. And then eventually the patient will be discharged from PAC and then go for their surgery. I just want to point out that typically these visits are happening one to two weeks before surgery. So while we can ensure that their medications are optimized, if a patient has a chronic disease that isn't at target, we often don't have sufficient time to get them there. And I want to highlight the fact that um, the process 
starts with the primary care provider, the patient's assessed by a surgeon. Really, the PAC is the last step in that preoperative assessment process. So what is our role as a perioperative medical consultant? What am I doing when I'm there as an internist? Well, I'm doing really two things. One, I'm doing a risk assessment, and that risk assessment will allow me to decide how to best medically optimize them with the goal of reducing postoperative complications. So that process starts by taking a history, doing a physical, reviewing their investigations, ordering initial invest or additional investigations if needed. That allows me to formulate a risk assessment. In turn, um, based on that assessment, I may order further testing to better inform the patient's risk. I'll give them some recommendations around how to ma manage the patient's medications perioperatively. Um, we'll also use other risk reduction strategies like using CPAP if the patient has obstructive sleep apnea, initiating smoking cessation, et cetera. Um, we'll at times order additional post-operative monitoring. So we'll recommend whether they be at city versus at RUH, whether they need an OBS bed versus a regular bed, whether they require telemetry, continuous oximetry, et cetera. And then a really key role that we play is rescuing the patient from complications because we know that we can reduce the risk, but we can't eliminate the risk. The other piece is that risk assessment will facilitate informed decision-making so that the patient can make an informed choice about whether they go for surgery and so that they're mentally prepared if complications occur. Now, we've um, made some changes recently in pre-admission clinic with the hope that we can better optimize patients. As I pointed out earlier, the pre-op visit is one to two weeks before surgery, and that may not leave ample time to get the patient to target if they have, let's say, diabetes. So one of the things that we've started doing is screening patients two to four weeks before surgery. What this process involves is the unit assistant pulling all the patient's consultations, their booking slips, their labs, et cetera, about a month before surgery. The nurse will then review these documents, these investigations, call the patient to determine if there's been any interval changes in their health. They'll use a preoperative screening tool to determine which consultants they should be seeing um, with the hope that the patients are gonna be seeing the right providers. And then if the need is identified to change the PAC type, either adding a consultation or removing a consultation, that's done in uh, discussion with the anesthesiologist or general internist on for the day. And then the nurses will also complete a uh, preoperative testing grid so that they get the right blood work. And our hope with this is that one, we further reduce same day cancellations, that we better utilize the resources uh, that we have, and that we make the PAC clinic flow more smoothly so we can see more patients and do better assessments. So this is the grid, also didn't show up on these slides for whatever reason, must be a Mac PC compatibility issue, but this is the surgical grid. So basically it outlines, based on the patient's medical conditions, what test should be, what test should be ordered for that patient. I've shown the screening tool here. So basically the nurses will review the patient's history and then um, depending on their conditions, they'll either see anesthesia, anesthesia and medicine, or just the nurse but we don't actually cancel a PAC visit altogether. And uh, we started doing this really in earnest in 
the summer of this year. And you can see that our screening volumes have gone up quite quickly. Uh, the goal is that we're going to be screening all patients referred to PAC uh, with the hope of improving care and reducing cancellations. Uh, so I just want to um, finish by stating that preoperative assessment, it, it doesn't just happen in PAC. It's a longitudinal process that starts with the primary care provider. Um, and really the PAC is just the last step. I hope I've demonstrated that pre-admission clinics are useful for preventing same-day cancellations and uh, also for reducing costs and improving patient satisfaction. And then um, I've uh, outlined some of the changes we're making in PAC to further improve patient care. So with that, I'll hand over to our next presenter. Okay. Um, thank you for the telling me who did the egg drilling. That was great. Um, so back to our patient. You know, his exam is pretty unremarkable. Blood pressure is pretty good. Could be a little bit better for diabetic, but he's in PAC, so a bit stressed. And then on his investigations, his random glucose was 13. He just had one of those tasty sandwiches provided in PAC. And then they added an A1C onto his blood work because they noticed it hadn't been done for a year. And then it was 8.3%. So GIM called ortho as per guidelines and the surgery was cancelled. The target A1C is less than 8%. Patient's a bit annoyed about being cancelled and then wonders what we're going to do to help him, but also wonders why he was cancelled. So here's my next presenter. All right, well, thank you everybody for, um, for this combined rounds again. Um, so first of all, I have no conflicts of interest. So the goals that I thought with this talk was going to be to discuss HbA1c and the role of fructosamine as well, to determine the association between an elevated HbA1c and a peripacetic joint infection, and to determine if there is an appropriate HbA1c value to optimize a patient or to cancel a patient, concerns that we have with HbA1c, and then to assess if fructosamine is a more appropriate test. So first of all, we all know the look when we try to send a patient to CTU. Um, it certainly looked like that when I sent one to CTU. Um, so in, um, for diabetes, the prevalence is 8.5%. The future predictions um, predict an incidence of one in three adults by 2050. So it's a huge issue at the moment. Um, so why is it in orthopedics a big concern? In the Canadian um, Joint Registry, um, they show that the infection is probably the biggest risk in total hip arthroplasty at 28%. And this is similar if you look at the infection rate for total knee arthroplasty. So if we can do anything in our power to try to limit this risk, I think it will be a huge benefit for patients as well as for healthcare and such. So first of all, I wanted to figure out what exactly is the HbA1c because I mean orthopedics. Um, so um, as we all know, um, the hemoglobin is the main substance of the red blood cell. So it's made up of all these amino acid chains. There's a little atom of iron that gives it the red color. There's four heme groups that oxygen binds to, and then it becomes oxyhemoglobin, and then it's delivered to all the peripheral organs, et cetera. Um, the hemoglobin A is the most common one in, um, in adults. So if you look at what happens with when you have glucose in your blood, the glucose binds to this hemoglobin, and then it becomes glycated hemoglobin. And so glycated hemoglobin have less potential to bind oxygen and then makes it more difficult to deliver the oxygen. So HbA1c actually measures the percentage of glycated hemoglobin in relation to the total hemoglobin in the body. Red blood cells also have uh, stay active in the body for about two to three months, and that's why we do it every two to three months. 
So the normal level for HbA1c is 5.7. In prediabetes, it's 5.7 to 6.4, and type 2 is above 6.5. And the goal for most adults with diabetes is an A1c that's less than 7%. So I try to find out from the Canadians, um, Canadian diabetes guidelines, what do they recommend in the perioperative period? And so the perioperative glycemic targets are less clear for minor or moderate surgery. I couldn't really find anything specific. What they did show was the older studies recommended the blood glucose between 5 and 11, and that limits your adverse events. They also then have to weigh the risk of tighter control versus all these hypoglycemic um, episodes. So they recommended do an HbA1c on all diabetic patients, monitor the blood glucose in hospital with anybody with an HbA1c more than 6.5, and they recommended that if your diet is tolerated, you should do it before meals and at bedtime, and if you're an NPO or an intro feeds, you should do it every four to six hours. And then obviously it should be an interprofessional um, approach that they have. They also mentioned that if you do the blood glucose monitoring, it should be between 5 and 10 for the best possible outcome. So then I looked at um, the guidelines for perioperative care, and the only thing I could find with them was, if you look down here, it shows that they recommend if the HbA1c is more than 8.5, patients should be counseled and sent for optimization before proceeding with minor or elective, minor or moderate elective surgery. So now we shift gears to fructosamine. So as you can see here on the right, so glucose binds to the hemoglobin, it becomes glycated hemoglobin, that's HbA1c. If glucose binds to proteins or albumin, that's then they become glycated, and then that's what fructosamine measures. So when would you really do fructosamine instead of HbA1c? <clears throat> HbA1c can be altered if people have anemia from vitamin B12 deficiency or folate deficiency. If people have sickle cell anemia, then it's probably better to do fructosamine because the values can be affected. Fructosamine, however, can also be affected. If somebody has nephrotic syndrome or hepatic cirrhosis, then that can also be an issue with fructosamine. So it's not one test that's really clearly better. So now what does the evidence show? So I did a PubMed, a PubMed and a Cochrane search, and I used the PICOS design, and I looked at HbA1c and fructosamine, and that was the search methodology. So um, there was not a lot of studies in the orthopedic literature with this, specifically looking at that criteria. Four studies that I'll look at specifically here. Um, the first study showed that the goal of the study was to evaluate if inadequate glycemic control in the perioperative period is associated with increased surgical site infections, and then to determine if this 7% is actually the correct cutoff to try to optimize patients. So they did all case control, cohort studies, clinical trials, 17 articles met the inclusion criteria, and then um, it was included for the systematic review, and then 10 were included in the meta-analysis. And if you look at this um, forest graph here, you can see that the top one is specifically with HbA1c and parasitic joint infections. And so they had an association with a higher HbA1c um, with a higher risk of parasitic joint infection. The second one, graph B here, was when they used a 7% cutoff. And they found that there wasn't really any association if you used a 7% as a cutoff. Second study was out of um, the UK. So they did a prospective cohort study of patients undergoing a primary total joint arthroplasty, and those are the um, hips and knees they included. And again, they used the HbA1c as their cutoff. For the unadjusted analysis, they found patients had more pain, longer length of stay, and worse patient-reported outcome measures at 12 months. But once they adjusted it for BMI and comorbidities, they found it was exactly similar. 
They also found that the longer length of stay was more associated with BMI and comorbidities rather than HbA1c. They also found that the complications and functional outcomes were exactly similar between the groups, and they thought that it was because there's not a lot of complications following total joint arthroplasty that it's probably underpowered. And then they found also that people with uncontrolled diabetes, which they thought it's more than 7%, had more pain at earlier outcomes, which was at three months, but similar again at 12 months. So they concluded optimal glycemic control may not be critical in determining clinical outcome. So they put this graph, and I think there was actually a very interesting graph. It's an acyclic graph. So a cyclic graph is when you have one, for instance, one exposure that leads to an outcome. This acyclic graph contains multiple vectors and nodes, and it just comes down to that it's not just one exposure that leads to an outcome, it's multiple things that contribute to a similar outcome. So if you just look at HbA1c, it's not necessarily contributing to that outcome. This study was a meta-analysis looking at 27,000 patients, and again, they look at the association between HbA1c and perioperative hyperglycemia and peripacetic joint infection, Again, with this um, graph here, they showed that um, the, if you look at the first one here, that was specifically for HbA1c, and the second one was for the perioperative hyperglycemia. Again, association between uh, elevated value as well as a higher risk of peripacetic joint infection. There was another retrospective study looking at 13,000 patients, and they tried to find again an association between HbA1c and perioperative hyperglycemia and peripacetic joint infection. Um, when you look at this bar graph, at 7%, they did not see an association between peripacetic joint infection, but then there was an inflection point at 8, where it suddenly it started to increase again, and the risk started to increase for peripacetic joint infection, and they used that as 8 and above. And again, with a perioperative hyperglycemia, they also saw an association between infection and the higher the perioperative hyperglycemia is. So I try to find studies looking specifically for an HbA1c cutoff, because what do we use? So the NHS diabetes guidelines used more than 8.5 patients should be canceled, and then it should be sent for optimization. The hip and knee international consensus of orthopedic infections said, between eight and nine people should be canceled. And then this last study said more than eight. And that was really limited studies with this. So now what are the concerns with HbA1c? So first of all, the half-life of three months. So this study looked at, they took patients, anybody that's above 7%, they canceled. So look at the patients and they found that 41% of patients awaiting an orthopasty were unable to, to reach this cutoff. So they just kept on going, living with their pain, with their um, waiting for, to try to optimize it. The 59 that actually did achieve the cutoff, achieved that in eight months. So it's, they ex extend their wait for another eight months. So secondly, is this chronically elevated glucose levels that the HbA1c actually measures um, associated with post-operative complications? Multiple studies do not think it is it's actually the perioperative hyperglycemia that they think is more associated with it. So you can have somebody with a perfect controlled HbA1c that's monitoring it for the past three months, but the last two weeks, he yeah, might have an infection and he's, high, and he's hyperglycemic, and that's probably more associated that these studies thought was with peripacetic joint infections. Now, age. Is everybody the same, or does A1c changes with age? And it is. A1c do increases with age. So the older you get, the higher your A1C gets. It's not significantly, but it's a little bit higher. 
Secondly, you also have to look at um, how frail they are. So all these societies, the Diabetes Society, the Geriatric Society, and all that in the Canadian Diabetes Society, they all looked at the frailty index. And so if we go this one, they actually divided it in this multiple <clears throat> frailty index. And the higher your frailty index is, the higher you should accept your A1C. So because if you suddenly try to put everybody in the same box and say you want to control it at 7.5, you run a risk for these patients to become hypoglycemic, getting loss of consciousness, falling, getting fractures. So now, so this becomes a little bit of a difficult situation because now you have to take this into account too. A little bit harder because most of our patients look like four and five in any case, but I don't think it's because of the comorbidities. I think it's more just because of the arthritis. So, um, <clears throat> so now um, if we go to fructosamine, so again, I did the same search, only two studies that I could find. The first one was the INSOL award study about fructosamine. Um, it was a prospective multi-institutional study. They looked at four academic hospitals. They measured the HbA1c and fructosamine within 30 days of surgery. The outcome was PGI, wound complications, readmission, reoperation, and death. And they found, and they did 1,119 patients. So if you look at the big bar here, that is a high fructosamine, and the small one is a low fructosamine. And the cutoff was 293 micromole per liter that they used. So if you look at this, you can see that all three of these measures had statistical significance. So peripacetic joint infection, readmission, and reoperation with a high fructosamine. They then went further, and they looked at fructosamine, and they combined it with HbA1c. And so this dark black bar here is a high HbA1c as well as fructosamine, while the lighter one is more a lighter. That's just high fructosamine with a normal or low HbA1c. And again, they found that the fructosamine that's high with a normal HbA1c had statistical significance with increased PGI, readmission, and reoperation. So they found it's a valuable test to screen Taroni patients with and without diabetes and it reflects this glycemic control closer to surgery and response much faster. Another study, 830 patients, primary total joints. Um, they again used the 293 micromole per liter as their cutoff. <clears throat> again, the same thing. They correlated this. The dark red is here is a high fructosamine. The dark blue is a high HbA1c. And again, the three that do show um, statistical significance are the high fructosamine. And again, the same thing, deep peripacetic joint infection, reoperation and readmission and it's actually quite um, interesting they they described it there and i will just i'll just put this up here um that your risk for peripacetic joint infection increases 11 fold if you um if you have a high fructosamine and they said 4.2 for readmission and 4.5 for reoperation if you have a fructosamine so quite significant so now they go to glycated albumin that's now the new study and so they think that might be the future Shorter, it's more standardized, it's a shorter life-life, it doesn't get influenced by other proteins as well. But I mean, there's not a lot of evidence out of this so far. And so just to come back to the goals again, so is there association between an elevated HbA1c and peripacetic joint infection? I think it's an indirect marker of more serious comor comorbid conditions. What is the appropriate HbA1c value? Nobody knows, but I think it's reasonable to assume above eight. Um, and it says if fructosamine is a more appropriate test, I think there are um, evidence suggesting that fructosamine should be the test of choice at this point.
Okay, good morning, everyone. I'm Devin Hodek. I'm one of the adult endocrinologists here. I'm not used to being at work this early, but I'm pleased to be here. Um, so my part of the talk, I'm just going to focus on trying to give you a rapid fire review of the landscape of diabetic pharmacotherapy out there, our approach to optimization, and I'll comment a little bit on my thoughts around perioperative optimization. So pharmacotherapy, um, I will say in the last five years or so, it's been a really exciting time for us. There has been an explosion of changes in the world of diabetes care, and it's rapidly evolving um, from things like the expansion of classes that we have to treat diabetes. Um, some of these classes have been around for a long time, but they're becoming increasingly more accessible to patients. We have a larger patient population where we have evidence to back up these therapies and their effectiveness. They're even moving beyond diabetes into cardiology, nephrology, hepatology. You are just going to see an increasingly amount um, of these medications used. They're becoming ubiquitous. So, I mean, the foundational therapy always in diabetes is insulin. We've got our older drugs like metformin, sulfonylureases like glycoside, some other therapies have for the most part faded into the background, TZDs, alpha-glucosase inhibitors, and you're going to see this large uptick in therapies like GLP-1 receptor agonists, Ozempic is all the rage, SGLT2 inhibitors, and sometimes there's a little bit of a role for a medication group called DPP-4 inhibitors. So there's a large repertoire of therapies that we're utilizing these days. So just very quickly, each class, so metformin mechanism and action, it's actually not well understood, um, but what we know it actually manifests in is a decrease in hepatoglucogenesis and enhances insulin sensitivity. Pros, long history, well-established, been using it for decades. It's cheap, it's weight neutral. There's maybe a limit, limited CV protective data behind it. Downsides are, can cause some GI intolerance, and we have to be aware of renal function because it needs to be renally dosed. Sulfonylureas, things like glycoside, these stimulate beta cell insulin secretion in a glucose-independent fashion, meaning they do so continuously. This is why these carry a hypoglycemic risk. Pros, long history, been around for decades, cheap, it's well-tolerated. Downsides, promotes weight gain, hypoglycemic risk, and we have to be conscientious of renal function. These old drugs, TZDs, so they enhance peripheral insulin sensitivity. You are not going to see these used very much, although they do have their place still. Um, long history, cheap, they're safe with advanced kidney dysfunction. The downsides, and this is why they kind of fell out of favor, is they have lots of nasty side effects. So they promote fluid retention. For people with cardiac disease, they can increase the risk of heart failure. So that was kind of the big concern. There is an increased risk of fractures for whatever reason, and there's possibly a small signal towards bladder cancer risk. So a decade or two ago, after all of this came out, they kind of fell out of favor. And then we got these new kids on the block. So GLP-1 receptor agonists, what are these? These are drugs that agonize incretins. So incretins are these gut molecules that are secreted after a person eats a meal and their glucose rises. So it 
it agonizes that effect, it agonizes the incredence, and it results in insulin secretion in a glucose-dependent fashion. So it doesn't do it um, in the background, and that's why it doesn't carry hypoglycemic risk. The pros are it's great for weight loss. So these are our obesity pharmacotherapy now, and this field is exploding, and there's lots of drugs coming down the pipeline. So you're going to see this used a ton. It's got CV protective data. It's CKD safe, and I will say kind of hot off the, hot off the press, there was just a randomized control trial with the primary outcomes being um, renal benefit and diabetes that was just um, halted early because it's been so positive. So these are going to be nephrology drugs very soon. And um, the downsides are uh, they're really expensive, so accessibility can be a problem. Um, they can be plagued by significant gastrointestinal side effects, and our colleagues are going to talk about some of the issues around delayed gastric emptying as it pertains to perioperative care. And there's maybe some concern about pancreatitis, although I'm not as sold on that one. So this figure just highlights this incretin effect. So, you know, if you load someone with IV glucose, you know, we can measure the amount of insulin secretion that occurs. When it's glucose oral ingestion, there's a significantly more accentuated insulin response. And this is this incretin effect. And so what GLP-1s do is they accentuate this incretin effect. There's these DPP-4 inhibitors. So what they do is they block the metabolic breakdown of incretins. So incretins are metabolized by DPP-4 inhibitors. So if we, uh, sorry, DPP-4 enzymes. So if we inhibit those, we keep those incretins around longer. And so they can help accentuate insulin secretion. They're well tolerated, they're weight neutral and they're CKD safe. But they're expensive. Access is a, a problem. There is certainly a little bit more of a clearer pancreatitis risk with them. For one of them, there's also a bit of a heart failure risk. And they don't have any of that um, CVD or renal uh, protective effects. So usually they're like not actually that worth it. And then SGLT2s is the other major group of medications we, we really are excited about and love. So these inhibit renal tubular glucose reabsorption. They've got great CV renal and heart failure protective data. There's a little bit of weight loss and blood pressure lowering we can get with them. Downsides are they're expensive. Access can be a problem. They increase urinary frequency because of that glucosuria. As well with that glucosuria, there's a bit of an increased risk of genital urinary infections. And there's this rare risk of something called euglycemic DKA. So these are huge in cardio nephrology world. These are now standard of care therapy for heart failure and nephropathy, diabetes or not. So you're going to see all of these um, cardiac and ne nephrology patients come in and you're going to like, what? People are like, oh, why are you on an SGLT2 inhibitor? Do you have diabetes? And they don't. So this figure just highlights kind of where these drugs are working. So there's these SGLT2 receptors in the proximal renal tubule that um, normally are uh, reabsorbing glucose, and we're just blocking that. So people just pee out glucose. And then there's our insulin therapy. There's simple insulin therapy in type 2, where sometimes they just are on basal insulin once a day, just a long-acting insulin injection. And then there's more intensive insulin therapy, or what we sometimes call basal bolus insulin therapy for people with type 1 diabetes or people with maybe more advanced type 2. 
And this can be in the form of multiple daily subcutaneous injections or for type 1's insulin pump therapy. And there's an increasingly amount of insulins you're going to see us using too. So the old traditional insulins, regular insulin and NPH, you're not going to see us use those very much anymore. Those have fallen away for our new synthetic analog long-acting insulins and our rapid-acting insulins, for which the pharmacokinetics mimic physiology better. And not only that, there's good RCT data that they're superior. So you're not going to see us use R and MDH much. You're going to see us using these analogs. And a lot of these analog insulins, the patents have expired. So now other companies are making them and then selling them cheaper. So for instance, like, you know, the traditional failover here for basal insulin was Lantus Glarging, but then its patent expired. So now another company made Basaglar. Basaglar is cheaper. The health region wants to save money. So you're going to see more people on these biosimilar insulins like Basaglar. And then the traditional failover for insulin here was, was usually Humalog. But again, like Humalog patent expired. Now there's biosimilars out. You're going to see people on Admalog. Nova Rapid was a common one too. Patent expired. So now you're going to see people on Trurapi. So you're seeing an increasingly different array of insulin therapies that are available too. So glycemic targets and optimization. So um, typically we're looking at things like A1C, a person's blood glucose, like if they're doing glucometer checks at home. And for those who are utilizing new sensor-based monitoring technology, like what we call CGM or continuous glucose monitors, there's something referred to as time and range we look at, which breaks down how much percentage of the day people are spending in target on their sensor. And so traditionally, general recommendations are we like to see that A1C less than 7. We like to see people's glucose readings between 4 and 10 as much as we can. Or for those that are using CGM, we like a time and range of 70% or more. That's the ideal. Um, that's what we try and strive for generally. We don't always get there, obviously. And the, the key thing we emphasize is glycemic targets are always individualized to the person in front of you. Everyone's a bit different and their needs are different. So there are some people we take a more liberalized approach to. And our, our thresholds might be more of an A1C of 8 to 8.5 or a glucose range of 6 to 12 and a time and range of 50. Who are these people? Well, the frail elderly, those that are functionally dependent, people with limited life expectancy, those who struggle with lots of hypoglycemic burden. And one may even argue those with long-established diabetes with lots of end-organ complications, why do we need to be so aggressive? So we're not, these targets don't always apply. And this is just a breakdown of these time and range figures we look at a lot nowadays in diabetes. So ideally, normally, it's nice to get that time and range greater than, than 70, and we like to keep lows less than 4% we might have a more liberalized approach in people where we're emphasizing less tighter control and more on minimizing low blood sugars. What's our approach to optimization? This is a busy slide, but what I just want to highlight is, you know, we assess the patient. We kind of see who's this person in front of us, what's their diabetes history, what's their comorbidities, what are their needs, and then we institute therapy. And if their if they're diabetes, glycemic, um, control is, is uh, or like um, dysglycemia is mild, we might be just starting with lifestyle um, 
a trial of lifestyle therapy and then seeing if they can control it there. And then if they can't, you know, usually we're instituting metformin. If their dysglycemia is a little bit more significant off the hop, like their A1C is more than 1.5 above their target, so say it's higher than eight, eight and a half, we will do lifestyle therapy, but we need pharmacotherapy as well. So usually people are getting metformin. Um, and then anyone who has severe symptomatic hyperglycemia, certainly with any form of metabolic decompensation like DK, it doesn't matter what kind of diabetes they have, they need insulin. And then we reassess. And there's this, there's this shift um, to focusing on therapies that have cardiovascular renal protective benefits. So that's kind of what these slides are highlighting, is there's a preference for these GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors, and a less favoring of older therapies like TZDs and sulfonylureases. And so that's like where that's where we've been the last couple of years is really trying to be aggressive about utilizing some of these other great interventions, especially with people who have established cardiovascular disease, established nephropathy or heart failure. There's really good RCT data to justify all of these therapies and making significant differences. There was a colleague I heard the other day, and I'll just paraphrase. It was nice uh, to hear it. Um, you know, aside from maybe cardiology, uh, endocrinology is fast becoming one of the most evidence-based fields in medicine. So we've we've got amazing data. And just every week, it's like another randomized control trial is coming out. And there's more to come. So stay tuned. Um, and so I'll just say, too, like there's another, there's another class of medications that just that has just kind of come out. I didn't have it in there, but it's a combination of GLP-1 and GIP receptor agonist therapy. So GIP is just another one of these incretin effect pathways. And um, this drug just got released and is on the shelf as of Wednesday. It's called Monjaro or Tricepatide, and it's a once-a-week medication. It outperformed Ozempec in terms of glycemic lowering and weight loss doesn't have this the cardiovascular and renal protective outcome data that will come but you're now going to see people on another therapy um, coming in for evaluation so preoperative optimization i'll give you my take on this so preoperative a1c there is clear data that higher a1c carries higher perioperative complication risk no question the higher your a1c is the worse your outcomes are the problem is there is a lack of prospective interventional data that intensifying control improves those outcomes. So I know you're higher risk, but do if I, if I rapidly improve your glycemic control, do I minimize that risk burden? We can't answer that. What are our targets? It's still a matter of debate. If there should be a preoperative target, what those targets should be, and what we should do if patients aren't at that designated target. So this is really controversial. We don't have an answer. There is no consensus, but I would say, generally speaking, most people are saying, ah, oh, it's probably nice to have an A1C under eight. And suboptimal control is defined by maybe that A1C above eight should probably prompt a referral to a diabetes care specialist or clinic so we can enhance intervention and surveillance. Options for suboptimally controlled cases are you could delay surgery and then utilize your stepwise optimization approach. You could keep your surgery date 
but just initiate or escalate insulin therapy for more immediate rapid improvements. But for someone who's insulin naive, they might not be keen to hear that you want to put them on insulin. Or you just accept the increased risk and proceed ahead. I think it always requires an individualized approach according to the surgical contact, the degree of glycemic control, this person's management needs, and what they're willing to accept. There are some dilemmas or ethical questions about delaying surgery. Um, so knowing that there's, there's increased observational risk, but there's an absence of prospective data to support benefits, are we justified in delaying surgery? Are we obligated to ensure that there is available support to assist patients in timely optimization? So if we're delaying their surgery, like we should be helping them then. Do we have resources available to help them? If such resources aren't locally available, is it fair or ethical for us to delay or cancel their surgery? And what do we do with patients for whom those ideal targets are just not obtainable or they're not willing to pursue interventions to get them there? And I don't bring up these questions to say I like have the right answer or, or that your approach is wrong or anything. It's just these are questions I think we have to address when we're creating a protocol. Um, so our patient was referred to endocrinology. Um, they were started on Ozempic, which is great for them. They returned to PAC only three months later. This is amazing. And their A1C is now 7.3%. Um, so now we're going to have our anesthesia colleagues talk about uh, diabetes medications perioperatively. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining this morning. And thanks for, to Dr. B for asking me to come join. For those of you who are from the anesthesia department, this might seem familiar. I gave this talk to our anesthesia department about a couple weeks ago, and it's just regarding this new Ozempic boom and um, prescribing that we're seeing. So the goals for my little presentation here are to identify the problem. Oh, what are we working with? Why are we getting emails from the CAS with these medication safety bulletins? And what's prompting this whole discussion? We'll review some of the basic pharmacology and just kind of do a brief overview of some of the case reports of what's happening. I won't go too much into the pharmacology as we had a bit of a chat about that already. We'll look over some of the evidence that these drugs can cause decreased GI motility and that they do cause or may cause an increased perioperative aspiration risk. And then we'll review some of the recommendations from some of our anesthetic societies, specifically the CAS and the CJA, uh, but other societies also have recommendations or at least medication safety bulletins. Hopefully this will prompt some discussion or a thought process about how we can address this kind of growing concern and some uncertainty. So what's the issue? There's emerging case reports of pulmonary aspiration after appropriate fasting. Uh, the reports are coming from patients on elective slates, uh, kind of worldwide, Canada, US, EU, Australia, New Zealand. There's retrospective studies confirming that these medications, they're associated with increased fasting gastric uh, residual volumes. And there's pharmacologic data showing that there's changes in gastric motility. So we know that they change gastric motility, but there's no real clear guidance on what a safe fasting duration is. There's limited evidence about the pulmonary aspiration risk. 
or the perioperative management of these medications in light of that. We don't know whether the medications um, in these case reports are causal or if it's just a correlational component. And then there's another issue in that there's changing prescribing practices. So as was mentioned, we're seeing Ozempic being used much, much more. And we'll talk about that a little bit. Really, there's kind of more questions than answers, which seems to be a bit of a theme today. And we also have to consider the risk-benefit ratio of stopping or continuing these medications, depending on their indication. You know, we have to consider the patient's glycemic control and whether they're taking these medications for diabetes or for weight loss and how that might impact their perioperative uh, surgical site infection risk and whatnot. The case reports, they're spanning multiple different types of surgeries and patient populations. Um, we'll see in the next slide or two, they might be taking these medications for different indications. They might be taking it on label for type 2 diabetes, or they may be taking these medications off label, such as Ozempic for weight management. Uh, the case reports, just to give a bit of an idea, are everything from a full stomach during endoscopy after fasting for 10 hours to a patient coming for a GA for a hysterectomy who vomited on aspiration or vomited on induction and then had their stomach suction for 750 mils of complex particulate matter. There's another patient who is coming for a MRI with sedation. They're on Ozempic for weight management. They're feeling bloated and a gastric ultrasound showed a full stomach. So there's a wide report and more case studies every day. So I won't go too much into the pharmacology, but as was mentioned, these GLP-1 receptors, they're abundant in the pancreas, but they're also found in the intestine, the lung, the kidneys, the blood vessels, the CNS, peripheral nervous system. GLP-1 or glucagon-like peptide, it's a hormone secreted by the intestinal endothelium and the brainstem is released when we eat food. So as was mentioned, it can increase insulin secretion, can uh, inhibit glucagon release, and it can slow the rate of food absorption. Can help with glycemic control, as mentioned, and as was also mentioned, there's growing and actually very good evidence for the cardiorenal protection. There's multiple cardiovascular outcome trials showing that there's decreased risk of major adverse cardiac events in patients that are on these GLP-1 receptor agonists. And then for weight management, there's possibly a couple of mechanisms of action for that, but delayed gastric emptying can reduce calorie intake. Patients feel bloated or they have slower delivery of nutrients to their GI tract, so that can aid with both glycemic control and weight loss, but there's also a potential mechanism where these medications act in the hypothalamus on some of the reward and satiety centers and cause decreased food intake directly. As for side effects, of course, there's these GI side effects, about one in five patients will have nausea. Somewhere around 5% of patients will have some sort of GI side effect. And these GI side effects can impact how we titrate the medications or just adherence to the medications. And then the rare things that were mentioned, like acute pancreatitis or gallbladder and biliary disease. So looking here, this is very much a non-exhaustive uh, summary of some of the medications that we'll see. The one that we're all hearing about is Ozempic, that's semaglutide. It's on label in Canada for diabetes management, but Ozempic themselves on their website and on their packaging mentioned that, oh, it causes weight loss, but this is not a weight loss medication. After semaglutide was approved for diabetes management uh, and seen all the great weight loss that was happening, it was approved at a higher dose uh, under a new name, Wegovi, which is approved in Canada, but I don't think it's actually available yet. Uh, and that's the same medication, semaglutide, but instead of up to one milligram subcutaneous weekly, it goes up to 2.4 milligrams subcutaneous weekly. There are, are, of course, other medications within the class. They're not all once 
weekly subcutaneous medications. But there's a common theme that if approved for obesity, the medications tend to be at a, a higher dose than if used for type 2 diabetes. And then as was mentioned, some of these case reports that we're seeing are not just on semaglutide, they are on this um, Munjar or trizepatide that was mentioned previously. Um, of course, one thing to note here is the half-life for these subcutaneous once-weekly medications. It's very helpful that a once-weekly medication can be taken and improve glycemic control, but it's a big consideration when we're thinking about holding a medication preoperatively. Common advice would be to hold it for three to five half-lives. You know, at three half-lives, the medication is 88% eliminated. And so for these medications, that might mean holding for three to five weeks if we want to get that sort of elimination preoperatively. So we have to be sure that's what we want to do. So just a brief review of some of the evidence basis. Aside from these kind of previously mentioned and still evolving case studies of aspiration, there's no large-scale clinical studies on aspiration risk. And those kind of studies for GLP-1 agonists in the perioperative period just don't exist yet. We do know that GLP-1 itself alters gut motility. This is just a study where they were infusing GLP-1 as an IV infusion to patients, and they looked at the rate of um, GI emptying, and we see that there's a dose-dependent decrease in GI motility. But as for the evidence for the impact on gastric motility and clinical full stomach, we can kind of look at these observational and anecdotal reports in light of these three other studies. And there's one other that is more recent that we can look at as well. So first would be a study by Silviera et al. that showed that fasting patients on semaglutide had approximately a five times risk of having residual gastric contents compared to those not on semaglutide. And that if they had preoperative GI symptoms, so nausea, vomiting, dyspepsia, or abdominal distension, they had a three-and-a-half-fold likelihood for residual gastric contents. But this was based on endoscopies. Only 33 endos endoscopies of patients taking semaglutide, but 371 endoscopies of patients in the general pop population. There was only eight cases of visualized residual gastric content. That was 24% of patients taking semaglutide had residual gastric contents, and only uh, 5% in the general population or the control group. The other study would be Kabori et al. That was a matched pair case control study for patients, again, for EGT, or sorry, EGD, uh, taking GLP-1 receptor agonists had a tenfold increased risk in residual gastric contents compared to the control group. So 5.4% in those taking semaglutide compared to 0.5% in the control. And all the patients who had residual gastric content were on long-acting GLP-1 receptor agonists um, with a mean duration of treatment of around 56 months. And then finally, Stark et al. showed that there was a four-fold increase in residual gastric contents associated with patients taking these GLP-1 receptor agonists versus the control group. But clearly, these kind of case reports, retrospective observational studies, can have a limited ability to inform our OR practice and our clinical practice. It's possible that these case reports, as anecdotal as they are, they're nothing more than associations and that there's no causal relationship. A newer study, um, this was published, I believe, in CJA, and it's very relevant to us as anesthesiologists, um, looked at findings of a small observational study, just 10 patients, of using gastric ultrasound being used in fasted adult volunteers, 10 taking semaglutide, 10 controls who are not taking semaglutide. And depending on the positioning of the patients during this gastric ultrasound, 
there was a relative risk of having residual solids in the stomach between 3.5 and 7.4. So 90% of those volunteers taking semaglutide had residual gastric contents after fasting and only 20% in the control group. Of course, it's not conclusive. There's limitations, but it's a preliminary study and provides evidence that these medications can cause um, delayed gastric emptying in fasted volunteers, especially that's our population coming for surgery or could be our population. So we'll look now just at some of the recommendations. First here from the CAS. So this is the medication safety bulletin that many of us got forwarded by uh, Dr. Orvold or may have seen on our own. And the quote from their bulletin saying, at this point, there are more questions than answers with regards to how anesthesiologists can best reduce the aspiration risk in individuals taking semaglutide. I think it's important to note it's not just semaglutide. So there, this is directly from their medication safety bulletin. I'll just read it verbatim here for those who aren't able to see the screen. We should specifically inquire about semaglutide and other GLP-1 agonists during the preoperative assessment. It'd be prudent con to consider patients taking this medication, particularly at higher weight loss doses, as potentially full stomach despite appropriate fasting. And if prolonged holding isn't feasible, sorry about that, risk reduction possibilities include postponement or cancelization, cancellation, sorry, an extended NPO period, though again, there's no good evidence to guide what that extended period might be, a clear fluid diet for some period of time, avoidance of deep sedation or GA if possible, and to consider a rapid sequence intubation if GA is required. And then the use of ultrasound for inspection of gastric content might be helpful in risk stratifying these patients. Another set of recommendations, or maybe not recommendations, but a paper from the CJA, which, as many of us know, is a publication by the CAS. Their recommendations aren't much different from the CAS, but again, uh, we'll go over them as well. And this is a quote from one of the authors of the article. When these early signals of a problem manifest themselves, it becomes reasonable to invoke the precautionary principle. After integrating this principle with the current signal of concern, rather than assuming GLP-1 receptor agonists are safe during the perioperative period, we would instead assume they may be unsafe and act accordingly. For patients taking a GLP-1 receptor agonist for weight loss, consider holding the drug at least, least three half-lives, approximately 88% clearance, ahead of the planned procedure. For semaglutide, that's three weeks. For patients taking it for type 2 diabetes, consider consultation with endocrinologists about the risks and benefits of holding the drug at least three half-lives. Prolongation of the fasting time is unlikely to be required or reasonable in patients since there's negative perioperative effects of fasting and limited evidence telling us what a safe fasting duration is. And if the GLP-1 receptor agonist can't be held for at least three half-lives, consider an RSI, if general anesthesia is required, to limit the risk of aspiration. If it's GA is not planned, we should be aware of the potential risk of regurgitation. Again, mention the use of point-of-care gastric ultrasound for risk stratifying and that we need more research on this. A big note that was mentioned through all of these guidelines and all of, they're not guidelines, publications and papers, is this is shared decision-making. It's not our, we need to talk to our patients, talk to the surgeons, talk to the proceduralist and make this decision together. Um, Take-home points, there's a risk of full stomach despite fasting in these patients, or there may be. Informed consent and discussion with the patient and proceduralist is key. We should potentially avoid monitored anesthetic care if GA consider an RSI and that gastric ultrasound can aid in the risk stratification. All right, thank you. Um, I say lots of 
more questions than answers at times. Um, so just to sign a sum up our case, our patient did very well. He held his Ozempic appropriately, um, although we don't know how many weeks. <laughs> his post-op triggers were four to six, so usually 3.8. So his metformin and glucoside were reordered. Uh, he wasn't eating well, so my only thing is please look at blood sugars in the post-op period and consider holding some of the medications that are going to cause hypoglycemia um, and then restart when they're eating and doing well. Um, so just in summary, um, from a GIM point of view, again, PAC is very important, but PAC does not give us adequate time to optimize these patients. So if you are the surgeon seeing these patients, you can refer to um, care providers, check an A1C earlier, um, suggest their family doctor A1C and referring to the program or another program to help them optimize their diabetes before they have their surgery. So we don't have to cancel as many. I don't think I agree there. Like the A1C and some people in 8.3, I might be like, oh, okay, it's not that bad. You're blood sugars are okay, but it's really up to you as a surgeon. So an 8.9 versus an 8.3, we're getting a little bit into some tight territory there. And we also have to think, what are their resources as, um, as mentioned? Like what do they have available? If they're from up north and they don't have the same resources, are they ever gonna achieve that A1C that we want? I'm not too sure. So it's kind of that discussion that we have versus just a blanket, let's cancel them at 8%. You've been listening to Airway Breathing Conversation, a podcast hosted and presented by the anesthesiology residents at the University of Saskatchewan. Please note that while this podcast is run by healthcare professionals, it is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. We are very thankful to our guests for taking the time to share their wisdom with us this episode, and a very special thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Don't forget to follow us and our associated USASC Anesthesia accounts on social media. You can find all our social media links on our Linktree page at linktr.ee slash abc underscore podcast. You can also find the department's social media links on their Linktree page at linktr.ee slash usask underscore anesthesia. We'll see you next episode, but until then, stay calm, take a breath, and always remember your ABCs.